Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Welcome back to part two of our interview on the Internet of Things. If you missed part one, that might be a good place to start. In part two, we'll be exploring some government regulation. We'll take a look at some interesting case law and some examples of technological advances. With that said, let's get back to the interview. When companies have run into security issues, the FCC or the FTC will step in, in some cases, and begin an investigation. Yeah, and it happens on on both sides. Um, in the FCC context, and, and John and I spend a lot of our time before uh, the FCC, uh, what they'll do is issue a letter of inquiry, generally, to start this investigation, an LOI. Um, that will begin the investigatory process. Um, they will request all sorts of information about what happened, when. Can you give an example? Uh, sure. So a, a great example um, is Cox Communications. In the Cox Communications case, there was a data security breach. Uh, hackers were able to, uh, through a practice called phishing, um, pose as uh, IT, IT specialists within Cox Communications, uh, were able to gain the credentials of uh, certain contractors and employees of Cox uh, by using a fake website. Um, the employees would put their credentials in, the hackers took the information, were able to hack into Cox's systems and gain access to personal information and information about users' use of Cox's telephone network. So there was a breach, and in this case, the FCC began an inquiry, and what was the net result? So the net result of the inquiry was something called a consent decree, essentially a settlement. Uh, The FCC never proposed a fine. They never um, alleged in in what we call a notice of apparent liability. They never alleged any particular violations. Uh, But in the consent decree, what it said was uh, Cox Communications and the FCC have reached this settlement uh, dealing with an investigation into whether Cox violated certain privacy and security statutory provisions and rules uh, both under the FCC's animating statute called the Communications Act, and then also specific regulations that the FCC has promulgated uh, pursuant to that act. So they agreed to an investigation and then a certain compliance program? Yeah, so they so there, w- there was an investigation, and then they agreed to a settlement. And the settlement has a number of different components to it. Um, one of it, and this is the one that goes in the headline, uh, is the dollar figure. Uh, in this case, it was uh, somewhere in the six figures between $500,000 and $600,000. And then there are also uh, compliance plan provisions. And so uh, in the consent decree, what the FCC tries to put forth in its compliance plan is essentially a wish list of things uh, that it wished all companies would do, um, but they're imposing on this particular company. Now, uh, one thing of note, in the consent decree, the FCC actually said Cox has many of these things in place already, uh, but just in case, here's here's what we're going to require them to do. So it's things like having a training program for all employees uh, who deal with personal information. Uh, There are requirements to abide by certain uh, 
security baseline procedures. Those can be physical, administrative, uh, or, or technical. Um, there are other things like uh, notifying the FCC if there are any breaches of the privacy laws uh, in general. Um, John, are there any other particular provisions you want to mention? No, I, I think what I would sum up here is that uh, in certain instances, providers have an obligation to notify. In that particular instance, they, Cox already had an obligation to notify. That's what triggered the investigation. They had a notice obligation under the FCC's framework already. And um, the result here is a settlement. But the result is a settlement that is roughly $10,000 per violation per consumer affected. It's rel it wasn't widespread, this, um, the problem. Uh, it was actually rather, um, rather narrow. But uh, think about it, $10,000 per um, consumer uh, is roughly how you could translate that settlement. Uh, that is a that lot of money. if we're talking about a lot Yes, of if it consumers. was widespread. I mean, this one was roughly 600000 uh, And so that is, it's relatively contained. But if you do that 10,000x, uh, it could add up uh, quite a bit. And then you have um, the costs uh, that continue uh, with these consent decrees. In some cases, the consent decrees have a shorter shelf life of, uh, say, three years. In other cases, Federal Trade Commission consent decrees often have a shelf life of 20 years, uh, where you have to agree to go through um, third-party auditing, for example, for 20 years. So the cost of these things can be, um, they could play out over many, many years. So if companies are doing their homework and they see the dangers that what, sure. what can happen in case of a breach, they may be implementing some of these type of procedures in advance. Most companies will take a look at whatever comes out of the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and say, okay, what happened? Are we well situated to avoid that outcome? Are we guarding against uh, the situation that uh, was uh, of interest to the agency? Uh, are we properly protected? What can we do to mitigate the risk such that we don't come under something similar? And uh, many people, uh, probably in reaction to the Cox case, many companies probably said, okay, it's probably time to retrain our employees about the dangers of phishing attacks. Uh, people pretending to be somebody other than who they are, right? When we're talking about security so far, we're mm -hmm. talking about keeping the data safe. How about the security of the individual items? Are the smart light bulbs or the smart toaster ovens or the smart thermostats easier to attack, perhaps, than your computer or your cell phone? I think it might be. Uh, you know, when you have uh, most cell phones today, most smartphones today, the device manufacturers in many instances will push out a security patch. You'll get a new version of the software. And in many instances, that's to address a known security vulnerability that they're trying to patch. And if you have a, you know, a security flaw in your car software, uh, the manufacturer likely will push out a, a, an update, right? And increasingly, that stuff is going to happen in a way that travels over the internet and won't require you actually to go into the shop and make an appointment and have the electronics uh, updated. Um, but it becomes a little bit more questionable, right, when the devices that are connected uh, become less expensive and uh, their origins are not well-known companies. And think about, uh, you know, are they really going to send out a security patch to a bunch of light bulbs? not sure, uh, you know, what's the shelf life of those light bulbs supposed to be, toaster ovens. And, and so I, I think you're right, Joel, to recognize that there is potential vulnerability with regard to um, the Internet of Things being incorporated into um, more mainstream consumer devices that are um, less costly, frankly. So there may be some catch-up when it comes to the actual security of the hardware itself. 
for some of the smaller items. There, yeah, there may be some catch-up. I, I wonder if it's cost-effective in some cases to push out these updates, and that's really where the risks come from. Uh, there was an article by Bruce Schneier. He's a noted security expert. And that was one of his primary concerns about the Internet of Things. Is how do you update the firmware over time? Um, do, do some of these companies care enough? And I think those are the sorts of risks that make regulators in Washington uh, think carefully about whether new protections are needed uh, related specifically to the IoT. One of the other legal issues involving having more and more items connected to the internet is how the internet is treating those items, whether they're being prioritized or treated in some other way. Sure. So uh, over the last 10 plus years, there's been a raging debate at the FCC over a concept known as net neutrality or the open internet. Uh, it's taken a number of different forms, and I won't get into all the details, but suffice it to say that in 2015, the FCC released a blockbuster order that imposed uh, net neutrality or open internet rules on what are called broadband internet access service providers or bias providers. Now, before we get into what the bias providers are, yeah, sure. what is net neutrality? How, is, how do providers have <clears throat> to, to treat I guess, internet users similarly. Yeah, so there, there are basic, uh, what the FCC would call you know, foundational um, rights here of individuals to connect the devices that they want to the internet. That's where the IoT comes in, to use the applications that they want, the services that they want, uh, free from practices such as blocking and throttling of your traffic. So throttling, the example would be uh, slowing down one site vis-a-vis -vis another site. So when it comes to items, we might here be talking about, well, maybe one company that has a relationship with the provider, their thermostat would work faster or would work better just because of the way the internet was treating it. If you think about it in terms of, say, the electric grid or something like that. Uh, if you were to get full power on one brand of blender, uh, but you weren't to, to get full power on another uh, brand of blender, uh, consumers or the people who sell the blenders might say, hey, that's not fair. We should get full power for all of them, or the consumer should get what they pay for, at least. So it's a similar sort of harm in the net neutrality context. With uh, blocking and throttling, uh, these are things that have come up in, in the past. There have been alleged harms. So, for example, in the blocking context, uh, there was a period of time where AT&T uh, wouldn't allow you to use uh, FaceTime with your iPhone. Because and they wanted to control the way communication was taking place or because of certain risks related to FaceTime? Well, this is one particular uh, incident where the advocacy community and consumers were up in arms. Hey, my friend who uses his Verizon iPhone is able to use FaceTime. And ostensibly have, Apple was as well. Well, right. And, and Apple, I'm sure, would like everyone uh, to use, to use their, their FaceTime product. Um, but, you know, these sorts of issues have actually come up 
time and time again uh, over the past 50 years at, at the FCC. Back in the 60s, the FCC, in a case called Carter Phone, uh, decided that a consumer should be able to connect any device to what was then the Bell Network, so long as that device didn't harm the network. And that principle has, has carried through now uh, to the open internet rules, which say that you should be able to connect the device that you want to the internet free from uh, blocking, uh, throttling, or paid prioritization, or any sort of unreasonable disadvantage. Yeah, those sure. things, blocking, paid prioritization, throttling, all those things are um, examples of discriminatory conduct by the service provider, the internet service provider, of favoring uh, their own products, perhaps, over somebody else's. Their own video services, their own connected home products uh, might be an example in the Internet of Things uh, space, right? Where the uh, Internet access service provider has a suite of connected home products. If theirs moved faster and worked better than uh, the ones you bought at Home Depot, made by a different manufacturer, not part of their environment, uh, that would be a problem. It would give them a huge advantage. It would. So the, uh, the open Internet rules say you can connect your uh, smart thermostat to the network uh, of your choosing. Uh, and it should work as well as the uh, suite of products that the internet service provider may offer you as well. It also, uh, they also have a rule, a forward-looking conduct rule that says um, the internet service provider should behave, essentially. And um, then there is a, a uh, there are a couple of exemptions that I think, and one is important to, to think about is uh, specialized services. Sure. Uh, because some of the uh, things that are out in the internet of uh, things space uh, we'll need to work differently in order to work, right? Over today's networks, uh, voice traffic uh, happens over the internet right now because voice packets are prioritized. Unless they're prioritized, it comes out of gibberish on the other end. Voice packages, like if I'm using Siri to compose a text message or if I'm using a dictation It's just software. a network construct, Joel. It's the pieces, uh, the internet is, breaks all data, including voice, into little bits, right? And it goes and travels across the network and it gets reassembled on the other end. Uh, if voice isn't prioritized or video isn't prioritized over mobile networks, it won't come out right, right? Your, the voice won't uh, come out, it'll be uh, all broken up, uh, or the video won't come out as you need it for streaming. So there are certain products that do get prioritization. And I think what uh, we have in mind the Internet of Things, there are certain things that will have to get done uh, and can't have any latency in order to be effective. Think about the medical space, right? Think about the connectivity that could uh, facilitate a diagnosis uh, from a doctor in New York for a patient in rural America. It's, it's, I think that uh, there's a concept out there of specialized services where the FCC perhaps is anticipating that there are going to be certain things that may um, may need to be prioritized in order to work. I think that uh, there are a lot of things that have to be, uh, are, we'll, we will have to wait and see how things play out in this space. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the more interesting things happening is a debate about what carriers can do with regard to video services. Uh, one uh, service provider, wireless service provider, has decided certain video services will be free over its network, right? Um, well, that raises a question, well, why not all of them? Right? Why not? The, why just the ones you pick, but not the ones the consumer picks or other companies? What about the companies who weren't picked? Is this the T-Mobile example? Yes. T-Mobile recently uh, released a new product, announced a new product uh, called Binge On. The Binge On product says that you can watch all you can eat 
uh, a certain subset of video uh, providers that T-Mobile has identified. Things like HBO Go might be an example, or Netflix, and I'm sure it covers, you know, 75, 90% of, of what people will watch if they have a go-to to watch video. There are some video service providers that are not being included. Now what T-Mobile said is, we're going to set a standard. And if you meet the standard, the quality standard that we've set, then you can join the club. But if you don't, then you're outside of the club. The question that gets raised, and there were some advocates, um, net neutrality, open internet advocates who raised this issue, is what about the startups? You know, are there startups out there, innovative, disruptive companies that are going to lie within the data cap that people aren't going to want to use because they have their limited data cap, but they've bought this binge on product. I'd rather go watch HBO Go, even if I have, um, say, less selection or, or something along those lines. Uh, so many advocates say that this uh, is a violation of, of the open internet, of principles of the open internet. The interesting thing, Joel, is that now you have a situation where you have this construct called net neutrality, you have a series of regulations, and the questions raised by this offering, which haven't been answered by the regulators yet, uh, are interesting. Can a provider say, okay, this certain set of things will travel over our network to you, consumer, outside of your cap, but other things are inside your cap? And that is the issue that the FCC is looking at carefully. Does that remain neutral? Does it remain neutral? Does it favor one set of video providers over another? Does it box somebody out? And would it change if one of those providers was, for example, paying a fee to AT&T or T-Mobile? It could, it could change if one of those providers was paying a fee. It could change if one of those providers was affiliated uh, with, the, with the service provider. And uh, so I think this is a good example of watching to see how regulations like this interplay with a very dynamic marketplace and the Internet of Things will be dynamic. Things will be tested in terms of the uh, framework of rules, including net neutrality, the privacy and security framework we talked about earlier as well. The Internet of Things uh, analogy here uh, would be, let's say, for example, so Verizon has a home automation suite and uh, recently announced something called ThingSpace. It's going to be a, a platform uh, for IoT devices. Time Warner Cable has, uh, it's called Intelligent Home, I think is theirs. Uh, Comcast has theirs. I mean, all of the large, all of the large, it's the cable providers or the, the telcos, the fiber providers. And imagine that they were to do something along the lines of what T-Mobile is doing. They say, if you're connecting through our particular platform, it's going to be outside the user's data cap. Uh, if you're not going through our platform, through the best efforts, internet, then you need to meet a certain standard, or you're going to be blocked, or it's going to be part of your cap, or it's something along So again, lines. it's not the traditional net neutrality issue of slowing down the speed or prohibiting access over the internet service provider, but it may be changing some of the pricing or allowing certain benefits to some companies. I, I think, yes. So there are what I'll call the red flag net neutrality issues. If they were to flat out block a, a certain device, or if they were to throttle one video provider and allow another video provider or an affiliated video provider um, to go at full speed. And these are kind of the, the big red flag issues. There are other issues that go into you know, partnership-related issues. In the case of net neutrality, if a company 
steps over the line, or if the gray area turns out to be a red area, what type of penalties are we talking about? There are a number of potential penalties. Some of them are, are set forth in, in the statute and in the rules. Let me just say this. Um, the FCC increasingly has gone uh, in its enforcement mode is, uh, to set a strong, set, send a strong signal. Uh, we see uh, the FCC uh, proposing fines uh, in the neighborhood $100 million uh, for certain violations. And that was a recent case uh, involving AT&T uh, where it had claimed, I think it was unlimited, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, according to the FCC, what they were offering on their uh, data network was not unlimited. And so the FCC has incredible finding authority uh, and that they uh, have increasingly uh, shown the industry they're willing to use. And so uh, the numbers can stack up quite a bit, no matter how much it is per individual violation, they add up uh, tremendously. So, so the gray area could turn out to be a very expensive. Yes, depending on what the issue is, if the agency wants to make uh, a statement, and it depends on uh, the company that's involved in it. Um, you know, AT&T, $100 million is likely a lot of money for even AT&T. We've talked about a number of issues today. We've talked about privacy, security, net mm -hmm. neutrality. What can be done to create better protections for consumers? It goes both ways. It's for consumers uh, who are using Internet of Things devices and, and bringing them into their homes or driving them, uh, and for companies who are getting into space and offering products uh, uh, that connect to the Internet, smart thermostats, smart light bulbs, connected cars, healthcare, agriculture. You think about all these things. And uh, there uh, are uh, privacy by design and, and security by design is a framework of thought about how companies should approach these issues. And it is uh, to approach that from the get-go. Uh, in product development, you incorporate privacy and security all the way through the product development, past the launch, and through the entire life cycle of the product. And that is a framework and a mindset for a company that I think should be embraced. But it's also, I think, relevant to consumers as well. Because if consumers are going to be concerned about security uh, of the video monitor in their um, nursery or um, of the smart thermostat or the privacy of the information that's going through the Fitbit or the Apple Watch, uh, consumers also need to be aware of privacy and security uh, from uh, the point at which they think about incorporating these devices into their lives. I think consumers uh, can say, oh, well, nobody told me or it was buried in a big privacy policy, but I think increasingly uh, the companies are becoming more sophisticated and you're going to get to know, you're going to get a push notification saying this data is happening, this data is being accessed and being used. So consumers have to raise their level of awareness if they want to be sure they're not surprised by particular uh, buckets of information going somewhere that didn't expect it to go or a security intrusion in their house because they didn't pay attention to things and um, they had not set um, the device up correctly or they had not chosen the right choices. I think um, the privacy and security design framework suggests that companies should default to private, default to secure, but it isn't always going to be that case. So consumers have to be aware of the choices that they may be presented in the particular products and services that they buy related to the Internet of Things. I think John's right. I think uh, from the consumer perspective, it's about being an engaged, informed consumer. Uh, when you pick up the box or when you're surfing Amazon and looking at the connected thermostat, uh, click through to the privacy policy and, and understand what information they're going to be collecting from you and what they plan to do with that information. 
currently, the way the laws are set up, unless there's a, a security breach or, or inadequate security, at least on the privacy side, the company needs to breach some sort of promise that it made. It makes those promises in the privacy policy on its website. Um, you'll, you'll see it in the App Store, how they plan to use certain information of yours. Well, when, as we said before, when the companies are the ones that are drafting these policies, they tend to give them as much discretion as possible. I think I think that um, we are, though, seeing a trend uh, toward companies disclosing more and disclosing more upfront. Um, and I think that really what it comes down to is there needs to be a dialogue about customer expectations, about consumer expectations, one that promotes transparency between the the consumers and what they're expecting, what they want, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the companies, what, what information they're collecting and how they plan to use it. And once we have an informed consumer base and a, a transparent industry, uh, then I think that it'll benefit uh, privacy and, and security and, and values. Perhaps I'll get some predictions. Uh, obviously, the best type of predictions are the ones that are on camera that we can then check in a, in a, in a few years from now. But without holding you to it, how do you see the development of the legal regime as the Internet of Things continues to grow? I would say it's going to be incremental. In this country, we don't pass laws quickly. right? There aren't any uh, Internet of Things uh, items uh, pending before Congress. There are, there are uh, no pieces of legislation pending uh, on the particular topic of the Internet of Things. But there are hearings uh, in front of the um, various committees uh, on Capitol Hill. There are um, workshops. Uh, the Federal uh, Trade Commission issued a report stemming from an Internet of Things workshop. Uh, and I think that uh, many agencies will approach that um, and uh, gather information. Uh, but I think incremental is the answer. You'll see some enforcement work, I think, from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, expanding upon what it means by its net neutrality rules. You'll continue to see both the FCC and the FTC uh, enter into the enforcement realm with regard to um, privacy and security. I think that the Federal Trade Commission is likely to continue to assert itself, particularly in the Internet of Things space. Uh, if it's not a provider doing it, it's going to be the Federal Trade Commission. If it's a service provider, Internet access service provider doing uh, the um, thing that uh, concerns a regulator, generally it's going to be the Federal Communications Commission that's going to do it. Again, quick break for our continuing education listeners in California. The code for this interview is 072616. Again, that's 072616. And now back to the interview. Is that a way of, of saying that it'll be reactive, that the government will continue to uh, assert its authority but when data is breached or when privacy is breached? I don't think so. I think, I think enforcement uh, tends to be reactive because it's, it's coming after the event. But I don't think, I wouldn't call the government being entirely reactive because in many ways they are proactive in terms of having hearings, right, in terms of having workshops. And industry as well. Uh, will be a combination of reactive in terms of, oh, what just happened in that enforcement item? Let me check to make sure I'm not exposed and it's not going to come upon me next. But they'll also be proactive, and you'll see that in terms of 
industry self-regulatory constructs, right? Uh, where industry gathers and say and says, okay, here's a code of conduct essentially that we will agree by. Uh, we will brand it and have a trust mark uh, associated with it, and we'll be held to it. And oftentimes, industry does that to get in front of regulation, to prove to regulators and lawmakers that laws and regulations in particular aren't needed because the industry has gathered around a framework. And if we say we're going to agree to it and we don't do it, then you can enforce. So we should look forward to new industry guidelines, best practices I think so. that companies will get on board right. with. I think that's right. What the federal government is trying to do now is to set a baseline. The, John mentioned the FTC's report. Uh, the result of this report, and it took, uh, I think, over a year to, to put it together, uh, was that the principles that we've had in place and the underlying laws and procedures that they have over at the FTC are generally sufficient to deal with issues that may come up related to privacy and security and the Internet of Things. They didn't call for any IoT-specific uh, legislation. They said it'd be premature for that, although they did call for specific data breach notification laws. Um, but what you're seeing is, you know, the, the federal government is congealing around this idea that the Internet of Things is going to be big, that there are going to be issues. Some of them we can, we can foresee right now. Some of them have already happened. You know, John mentioned TrendNet before. But a lot of it, if we were to think think ahead is, is purely speculation about some of these harms. And so taking a cautious approach, setting a baseline, and then waiting and seeing is, I think, the, the approach that the federal government is taking right now. I think one of the last things uh, I'll point out, though, uh, one of these principles that has been in place and that actually is under some pressure is the principle of data minimization. Uh, it's, um, uh, it is a construct part of the fair information practices has been in place, as they call it, FIPS, for um, decades, right? Don't collect data that you don't need. Don't right. collect don't too keep much it, data. Right? Don't collect more than you need and don't keep it for, more than you, for longer than you need it. Uh, but with the, open, with the Internet of Things and its uh, potential to solve problems from transportation problems, traffic congestion, uh, healthcare problems and whatnot, uh, there are folks uh, who are thinking, hmm, maybe that principle is coming under uh, some pressure in this new, uh, new environment and maybe it deserves some rethinking. Because if we're constantly getting data and disposing of it, what can we learn from it? And uh, that's a public, uh, you know, from a public good perspective, uh, things can be solved by studying data. Uh, companies, though, are also so tempted to keep data because uh, data has a perceived value. And increasingly, um, companies are getting more and more data and trying to figure out, well, what can be done with it? So there's a bit of a tension of this uh, risk of keeping and getting too much data. Uh, but then getting rid of it before you figured out its value or uh, what problems you can solve or what can you sell based on that data. I think that's going to be an interesting thing to see what the government and industry do uh, with that principle in particular. That one in particular is uh, one of the long-standing principles that I think is under a little bit of strain right now. Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting things is how regulations that do get put in place uh, have an impact on the way that some of the, for example, the carriers build their build and deploy their networks. Verizon's a great example. They just announced that they're going to have a new, and in connection with their Things Space uh, IoT platform, they're going to have a new IoT specific network separate from their best efforts uh, broadband internet access service network. The question is, you know, is this specialty network 
within the open internet regulations? Is it outside of it? What sorts of issues might happen there? People are concerned about a, a divided internet, a federated internet. And as the FCC, as other federal agencies start to wade into these debates, you're going to see a reaction on the industry side. And some of it may be worse than what we had to begin with. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.